The scripture reading this morning is taken from John chapter 12, verses 12 through 16. These will be the scriptures that Tony is based in his sermon on this morning. The next day, the great crowd that had come from the, for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he, the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first his disciples didn't understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these, feel, these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kimberly. Welcome. Happy Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the time we prepare ourselves for Easter, the great celebration of the Christian church of Jesus Christ's triumph over death. And really, Palm Sunday is a preparation for that, a thinking about that, a uh, first step on the journey towards Easter. So let's look at it. Verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the feast heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. Those of you who were here last week know that Jesus was at Bethany. Bethany is a small town at the base of the Temple Mount. It's by the River Jordan, and it's two miles from Bethany up to Jerusalem, which is on the top of the mount. And so Jesus went to Bethany on his way to Jerusalem. And there he stayed with Martha and Mary and Lazarus, who he had raised from the dead, as we looked at last week. And so all these pilgrims who are on their way to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover know about Jesus' miracle. They know about the resurrection of Lazarus. They're excited about what this might mean for them. And so this was a special Passover. This was a Passover where literally they were seeing the death, the triumph of death promised in Scripture beginning to be fulfilled. There was an expectation. Verse 17, Now that the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that they had given this miraculous sign, went out to meet him. So every year, Jerusalem was the center of Israel, and anybody who could went there to celebrate Passover. But now, with Jesus' miracles, with his teaching, with the signs, with his resurrection of Lazarus, this particular Passover had become all about him. And Israel is a small country. And Jesus traveled around it for three years, teaching, performing miracles. Nearly everybody in Israel would have at least heard about him. Many of them would have seen him personally, would have heard him teach personally. And so he had become this huge figure in Israel's imagination. And there they could see at Bethany, just down the hill from Jerusalem, there they could see Lazarus, the man raised from the dead. So this was a huge time in Israel's imagination, in Israel's social life, 
in the the religious and spiritual life of Israel. And so the crowds must have been vast, excited. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Hosanna means God save him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is a quote from Psalm 18. A messianic psalm, that is a psalm that promises that a Messiah will come to Israel's aid. Blessed is the king of Israel. Here Jesus is being acknowledged explicitly as king of the Jews. As the one sent from God to restore Israel to its former glory. Verse 14. Jesus found a young donkey and sat upon it, as it is written. Do not be afraid, O daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. As it is written. This is a quote from Zechariah. It is a fulfillment of what Zechariah had promised Israel 500 years previously. It shows that Jesus wasn't just some random accident. He wasn't just winging it. He wasn't just giving it a chance and seeing what would happen next. Rather, he is a fulfillment of all the stories, all the prophecies, all the promises of the Old Testament. It's like these great interlocking wheels of history are grinding towards their fulfillment. And everyone there would have known it. This was no ordinary man. This was no ordinary Passover. Why the palm branches? Well, it was the habit of Rome, and remember Rome was occupying Israel at this time. It was the habit of Rome to use palm branches, palm leaves, to celebrate a victory. Specifically, the Greek, uh, the Roman goddess of victory, Nike, was symbolized by the palm branch. And so the palm was a Roman symbol. It signified military victory, and it was a celebration of a conqueror, a commander, a king who had just achieved something amazing. Israel seems to have taken over that symbolism because many in Israel thought that the purpose of the Messiah would be to kick out the Romans. The Romans had oppressed them, The Romans demanded taxes of them. The Romans chose their king. And they were fed up with it. And for many people, the Messiah, in their mind, would have been the king who returns, the conquering king who returns to drive out the occupying armies of Rome and restores Israel. But there's a problem. When Jesus shows up, He is not the king they're expecting. How do kings show up? They show up on war horses. They show up on chariots. They show up marching at the head of mighty armies. How does Jesus show up? How does the king of the Jews show up? On a donkey. On a colt. He was a man of peace, riding an animal of peace, something that a priest or a pilgrim or a simple traveler would have ridden to get from where he wants to go. 
Jesus embodies this contradiction. He is a Messiah, but he's humble. He's compassionate. He's a conqueror, yet he's a gentle warrior. He doesn't fit into their preconceived notions because he came to upturn those notions. As I say, Jesus here is fulfilling all of Scripture, all the promises and stories, all the narratives of the Old Testament. And therefore, it's not just a physical ascent that he's making. Everything he does is filled with symbolism, is a fulfillment of prophecy, is rich with meaning deliberately. His ascent is like a living parable, something that needs to be thought about and unpacked, something that as you think about it more and more, reveals more and more about what's happening. Passover. This is when Israel celebrated the fact that God in Egypt had passed over, that when the angel of death came to the first sons of Egypt, that angel passed over Israel's sons, and none of them died. It was the triumph of God over the Egyptian uh, people who had enslaved Israel. It was what set them free, and it was a protection, a guarantee of God's protection against death. Jerusalem. This is the meeting place of heaven and earth, of God and man. Because there, physically, inside the temple in Jerusalem, in the Holy of Holies, was the Ark of the Covenant. And on its golden lid, between the wings of two golden cherubim, the personal Shekinah glory of God dwelt. In Jerusalem, God and man came together. Bethany, where Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, an ascent from death to life. A king returning to his people, but not with a physical army, because this was a king that doesn't send other people to die for him, but rather dies for his people. Everything he does is filled with meaning. So the question, here we are, 2,000 years or so later, gathered together in this uh, gym to celebrate Palm Sunday. What does it actually have to do with us? What does it have to do with you and me? Why are we here? Well, think of what was happening back then. If you go to the Bible and you open it up to the middle, you'll find the Psalms, the prayer book, the song book of Israel and also of Christians throughout the ages. And towards the end, you'll find a collection of 14 Psalms. If you read them, they start at Psalm 120. They say, a song of ascent. And they are the Psalms, the songs, the praise songs, the pilgrims going up that hill from Bethany to Jerusalem would sing together. They were like traveling songs, reminding people why they were there and where they were going. 
Psalm 121 goes like this. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Remember, they're going up the hill here. They're going up the mountain to the Temple Mount. I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? The first thing that those pilgrims had was a need, a hunger. They knew they could not make it by themselves. They were looking to God. They were looking for something. You know, these were poor people. They worked on the land. They were giving up time working on their livelihoods, their food supply, to go to Jerusalem. It was important. It meant a lot to them. They went because they needed to. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Israel defined itself. All its social practices, its hierarchies, its habits and patterns of life were based on this relationship with God. It was the foundation of the Israeli identity. They built their life on this need and this promise that God would take care of them. It was the foundation for everything they did. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you all from harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. Forevermore. There's the promise. That God's promises are not just for this life, but forever. And that's why he had such a hold on them. It's a promise of life that will not end in time. will go on forever. And it's what they clung to. It was the foundation of their life and their nation. Now, it's not so easy anymore to be like this. America used to be like this. I studied uh, American literature when I was in England. And if you read the Puritans and the, uh, the literature of early America, it was exactly like this. America believed in the God who had created everyone individually and personally so that every person had inalienable rights because they were created and beloved by God. The Puritans write of a city on the hill, America as a new kind of people, a new nation in the world that is going to reveal to the world a new way of living under God. Now, of course, such ideas in America now are uh, deeply under threat. In fact, more than that, I would say for many people, and certainly many of the elites, this kind of language, this idea of basing a nation's life on God, is an embarrassment. Belief is foolish. Christian belief is suspect. Religion is a source of division and hatred and anger and violence. Christmas is for shopping. Sunday is for football. 
And yet, throughout America, in this run-up to Easter, the churches will be filled. Easter attendance is always the highest in churches all over America. In fact, all over the world. Why that? Why would that be? Because of a promise that Jesus made. We looked at it last week. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And that's the sort of claim, that's the sort of promise that grabs people's attention, grabs the human imagination. And though there have been other people who've made similar claims, and many religions in the world are based on similar claims, only Jesus, in all of history, went first to show the way. That's what Easter is all about. Verse 16. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that they had done these things to him. Jesus goes up the mountain. Jesus dies on a cross. Jesus is put in a grave. Afterwards, after three days, he is resurrected. That is the celebration of Easter. And after that, he is glorified, which means he returns to the Father in glory. And only after the disciples saw all of that did they really understand what Jesus was about. So what does it got to do with us? The same question. It's very personal and very direct. Do you believe in Jesus' promises? When you read this story of Jesus going up the mountain on a donkey, do you see him doing that for you? Do you believe? That's what Easter is all about. Remarkable claims, remarkable promises. Do you claim them? Are they yours? Despite what is happening in the culture, are they the foundation of your life? That's the question that you have to wrestle with every Easter. It's a question that all of us have to wrestle with. Some things to help you as you wrestle with that question. First notice again, verse 16. At first his disciples did not understand all this. His disciples, the apostles, the twelve, traveled with Jesus for three years. If you read the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it tells you what happened in those three years. They saw miracles. They had amazing teaching. They listened to parables. They saw Jesus interact with leaders, with ordinary people. They saw everything he did. They lived with him. They traveled with him. They ate with him. No secrets. And yet they still did not understand So recognize this. If they couldn't understand and he was right there, don't expect you to understand him completely. The human mind will never comprehend in this totality Jesus, God, salvation. But what we can do is know him. 
the way to Jesus is the personality of Jesus, the relationship with him. You can't comprehend him totally, that is, know everything about him, just as you can't comprehend a spouse before you get married. But you can know them and trust them and learn over time to love and trust them more. That's exactly what happens with Jesus. And so it's primarily not a matter of the head. It is a matter of the heart. It is our heart, a human heart, responding to Jesus and what he said and did. Not primarily our heads understanding everything. There are certain facts you need to know. They're in the Bible. There are certain things that you need to know that he claimed and promised. But primarily, Christianity is a matter of the heart. Now that's a problem. At least it was for me for a long time. When I was at seminary, we had a tacky Jesus wall. It was in my dormitory, actually, on my floor. And it was a wall where people from different parts of the country, when they would come to seminary, would bring examples of tacky Jesuses. Usually things painted on black velvet, like Elvis. There were clock Jesuses with electric glowing hearts. There were fluorescent Jesus. There were all different kinds. And uh, we would, there was a little action Jesus, I remember, that sat on the fire alarm. And people every semester and every year would bring more and we would fill this wall. But there was one piece that would be put up and then torn down and then put up and torn down because nobody could agree about it. It's very famous. It's a poem by Mary Stevenson. She wrote this back in 1936. I'm sure you've heard it. One night... I dreamed I was walking along the beach with the Lord. Many scenes from my life flashed across the sky. In each scene, I noticed footprints on the sand. Sometimes there were two sets of footprints. Other times, there was one set of footprints. This bothered me. I noticed that during the low periods of my life, when I was suffering from anguish, sorrow, or defeat, I could only see one set of footprints. So I said to the Lord, You promised me, Lord, that if I follow you, you would walk with me always. But I have noticed that during the most trying periods of my life, there have only been one set of footprints in the sand. Why, when I needed you most, have you not been there for me? The Lord replied, the times when you've seen only one set of footprints in the sand is when they carried you. So is that just sentimental pap? The argument raged when I was a seminary. Well, of course it's sentimental. Sentimentality is when somebody, a preacher, a teacher, a parent, uses emotion, tries to convince you of something, tries to convert you to something, when an argument by pressing on emotion rather than on some kind of rational argument. And usually, especially if you're a seminary or at a university, sentimentality is a bad thing. Appealing to the heart rather than the head is poor pedagogy. We're rationalists. We want to know. But there is an aspect of Christianity which is all about the heart. 
and you cannot deny it. And there is a truth in this, in these verses, what Mary Stevenson wrote. Paul writes in Corinthians, Jesus said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardship, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Exactly the same sentiment. The weaker that we are, the stronger Christ is within us. But what if you're a rationalist like me? Can you surrender yourself to what you feel about Jesus? And I'd like to suggest to you, you have to. You will never know enough or understand enough rationally, I believe, to come to Christ. I know plenty of people, I was a seminary with them, who studied theology, who studied the Bible. Many of them were professors who knew more than I will ever know. And they weren't Christian. They just liked the prestige of the job. They just liked the interest of theology. There has to be a movement in the human heart to come to terms with Jesus. And for it to work, you have to accept what is an apparent paradox at the heart of the Christian gospel. It's one of the reasons that Christianity is so hard for people to understand, particularly successful, powerful, or rich people. Knowing Jesus means knowing him, reading about him, seeing him, lifting your eyes to him. But the first step of being a Christian is in the opposite direction. It is seeing your neediness, not your strength. It is seeing Jesus descending to find you. More than that, entering in to the darkness within. And the paradox of Christianity is the only way truly to see Christ's beauty is to see the wretchedness within first. To see how much you need him. And to begin to grasp the remarkable fact that before we became beautiful, while we were still ugly, while we were still enemies, while we were still unworthy, Christ was willing to sacrifice himself for us. The more deeply you see your own need and wretchedness, the more beautiful Christ's sacrifice and love becomes. But the first step is always down, to see the need. Who ascended up that hill to Jerusalem? Well, of course, the pilgrims celebrating the God who was going to save them from death. They'd seen Lazarus raised from the dead. They were following Jesus up the hill. They were celebrating the God who loves them, the God who protects them. But somebody else goes up that hill. Sacrificial animals. Not such a joyful trip for them. Jerusalem was a beautiful city, the meeting place of heaven and earth, God and man. But it was also a city of blood and death. 
And at Passover, hundreds and thousands of animals were sacrificed. Their blood symbolizing the blood on the lintel back in Egypt that had protected Israel from the angel of death. Now, if you have ever been to Israel, you know it's a hot country. I've never heard it really talked about. But what happens if you spell the blood of thousands of animals in the hot sun? There must have been a stench of death around Jerusalem at Passover time. All that blood, all those dead animals, no refrigeration. It must have been a terrible sight. And when Jesus went up that hill, he was participating in that side of Jerusalem. Because Jesus is the sacrifice. We might lift our eyes up and ascend following Jesus, but it's only because he was willing to descend. Not just to become one of us, but to take on all the darkness within each of us. More than that, not just to take it on, but to die for it. Terribly, viciously, cruelly on a cross. And there needs to be a moment when you and I look at him there and recognize why he's there. For me, that is what is going to melt your heart. The Christian gospel is that we are more needy and sinful than we could ever imagine. And yet at the very same time, Christ looks at us and says, I love you, and I'm going to do what is necessary to lift you up so that you can follow me home. That is the promise of the gospel. At the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation says this. This is Revelation 7. I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hand, and they cried out in a, vo a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. In a moment, we're going to go to the Lord's table, and we're going to consume that sacrificial lamb in the bread and the cup. And if you see Jesus there, if you see him dying for you on that cross, then you're invited to follow him. You will become one of those throngs. You will gather around the throne one day and celebrate his victory. And we'll all be together forever, forevermore. That's the promise. That is why we get together for Palm Sunday, to grab hold of that promise together, to look forward to that future together, and to participate in that ascent together. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, We thank you for the miracle that though you are glorious and perfect and have everything, you are willing to give it all up. Come be one of us. Descend into the mire and muck 
of our individual lives. Take us on. Pay the cost to bring us home. Lord, help that be the foundation of our lives. Melt our hearts with that truth. Turn us into your people, your pilgrims, following joyfully. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.